And all God's people said, oh, come on, come on. We've been, I've been at teen camp all week. I know, I know we can do better than that. And all God's people said, amen. amen. That means it's true. Everything that we just sung is absolutely true, more than we can imagine. This morning we are uh, going to be blessed. Uh, we're blessed to have one of my good friends, uh, one of my best friends on planet Earth, Adam Willett, uh, come and preach. Adam is a, a former pastor. He's pastored a couple of churches, and, um, and uh, we went together, went to uh, school together at Central Baptist College in Conway, Arkansas, and uh, been good friends uh, ever since. Adam is uh, next year, hope it's okay for me to tell this, next year he's going to be working full-time at Westside Christian School, uh, teaching Bible and English and um, maybe, maybe, maybe co- helping coach basketball a little bit. We'll see. Well, he's not that very he's not that good at basketball though um but anyway uh we're excited to have adam here today and his wife katie and their three children they're expecting their fourth and so uh welcome to the four club uh but uh anyway be in prayer for him as he comes and brings god's word to us this morning and let's go to god together in prayer and then brother you come and preach Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word. I pray for Adam as he comes now to preach. I pray that your Holy Spirit will be in and through his words and that you will open our hearts and minds to receive um, your word and your challenges for us this morning. We give you glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you could turn to uh, Genesis chapter 4, Genesis chapter 4, I want to thank you for letting me be here today. It's a privilege to be with you, um, not just because you are great people, perhaps that's the case, but more importantly that we're together looking and worshiping God, and that's why we're here. That's really why we're here on this planet, not just here today, but every day for the worship of our great King. So thank you for letting me be with you this morning. Genesis chapter 4, we're going to look at a a familiar story, a familiar story of Cain and Abel. You probably know this story so well, but may we be reminded of the danger of sin and how it works even amongst believers in our corrupting flesh. Before we read this text, I wanted, I was thinking about this as, as, as Josh was speaking earlier. One of my earliest memories that Josh and I have, and I want to share this with you, not, not to puff him up by any means, but to show you how, how gracious the Lord is and how He works providentially through His people. The, one of the first times I remember being around Josh was as a freshman at Central Baptist College, and Josh was a senior. He's a few years older than I am. And he started to do this Bible study. And I can remember being in this Bible study, and there's, I don't know, six or seven guys. Probably, I want to say that we were probably some of the least concerned about the Bible. But yet Josh was very concerned about the Bible. And, and he taught us, I don't even remember what we went through, really. It was about the gospel, of course. 
But I remember having a, a private conversation with him, and he really challenged me. Um, he basically told me how I was a lot of talk, but not very much substance. And I was so upset with him and, and angry, but yet it was true. And that really challenged me to be concerned about the gospel, not just as something that I could say to other people or that I could say with my, and speak with my lips, but something that really mattered and, and changed my life. That's how the Lord works sometimes. Sometimes the Lord works through you chastising somebody like Josh did to me. Sometimes the Lord is more gracious and, and allows grace through, through soft and kind words. But the Lord works and is providentially working amongst His people, which is so good for us. And perhaps you have memories like that, just of one phrase that maybe somebody said at one time in your life that, that the Lord seemed to really use to convict and to stir. Let's go down to Genesis 4. Genesis 4, we'll read the first 16 verses, starting in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let's pray. Father, give us grace this morning, God. Please see fit to draw near to your people, God, that we would see how dangerous sin is, God. And how must we must be a people who are battling daily against it, Father. That we cannot be a complacent people. We cannot be a people who turn off our ears when we hear such things because we've heard them so many times, God. Let us... Be people that have ears that hear and eyes that see and hearts 
hearts that are filled up with gospel truth, God, and the truth of your word, Father. Please let us not be apathetic or complacent today, God. We cannot afford to be. We need you. And we need to have lives that proclaim the greatness of who you are. As many of the songs spoke of when we sang, God, we, we are to worship you and to give our all to you to glorify your great name because you are worthy to be praised. So God, teach us that this morning. Teach us that we are to run to you and run away from the things of this world, even the things that encumber us daily in our own flesh, that we are to cling to the cross and cling to Christ with every fiber of our being, God. Give us this grace and mercy today. Show kindness to us today, God. In Jesus' name and for His glory, amen. Perhaps when we go through a, a passage like this, especially when it speaks of great sin, we, we, we are prone to say how, how adequate we are to read through this, to learn through this, and perhaps even to teach or preach this. We would think we are, we are adequate because we, we know all about sin. We, we know how it works. We know how it destroys. We know how it harms. We know it because we are, we are people who are sinners. Sinner, sin is all around us. We, we drink, says Job, iniquity like water. We are people who know very well of sin. It's not foreign to us. So we could, in a way, say that we are very adequate to speak on this subject. But in turn, we could say that we are very inadequate. Because it is so much around us and in us and through us that we don't know anything outside of sin. We think sin and living in a world with sin is so perfectly normal. We've forgotten all the things in Genesis 1 and 2 that we were not made for this. We were not made for death or destruction or harm or cancer or sin in general. In every way, we're not made for that. We're made to be God's own possession apart from that. But yet after Adam fell in the garden and every single moment thereafter, all we know is how sin corrupts. And it doesn't just corrupt us, does it? We, we know it because we walk outside of these doors into a fallen world where even the earth itself has been corrupted by this. And it is, it is very hard for us. It's very hard to us in a practical way to really see outside of our bubble. You know, we have small children and we're constantly trying to teach them and the only thing they can see are the things right in front of them right and so as a father and as a mother my wife and I we both try to teach them about things that are that they might not yet understand well we are like the same we only see what's in our bubbles and it's hard for us to see outside of that so in that way we are perhaps the least adequate to teach on sin but yet by God's grace and mercy, we have His Word. We have His truth given to us in Scripture. We don't have to speculate. We don't have to come up with our own opinions. We don't have to stand up here and say, I know all about these things. We rest in the Scriptures, right? We, we rest in the truth found in the Bible. 
And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're just going to rest in the truth found in Scripture. And, and I hope more than anything that we realize how true the words are. We have a tendency to come to church like we do every single week and to sing familiar songs, to see familiar faces, and to forget how true and how deep the words of the Scripture are and how far they go into our lives. We've heard these stories, like I mentioned earlier, and they seem to be so commonplace for us, especially in a culture of South Arkansas where we, we talk about religion all the time. Even the heathen talk about religion. It's commonplace for us. So let us not be apathetic or indifferent towards this word as we so often are. In my own heart, I am. I want to make a few observations about the text before we really get into the phrases used. The first thing I want you to see is that it's in the course of time in verse 3 that Cain brought to the Lord an offering. But then it says in verse 4 that the Lord, verse 5 rather, that the Lord had no regard for the offering of Cain. Are we not doing that now? Are we not offering to the Lord? This is a warning to us that there can be a time where the Lord has no regard for your offering. Do you realize that? That there can be a time where our hearts are hard or our hearts are wicked and our minds are careless and our lives are so full of corruption and sin that we are so careless about Christ that our offering can have no regard before the Lord. Simple observation. That's a dangerous thing for us, right? That we can come here and I have done that. I can look back at my life, perhaps even recently, going through those motions that we talk about so often of doing the same things over and that my offering perhaps has no regard before the Lord. So I think it, it's a very purposeful thing that we come and worship before God. So worship matters. And I want you to remember as we go through this text, Cain was a worshiper. He was one who is bringing offerings before the Lord. I would imagine he's probably done so dozens and hundreds and perhaps even thousands of times in his life, brought offerings before the Lord. He's not a young man, I don't think. He said later when the Lord cursed him that he was fearful for his life of being a wanderer on the earth that somebody would kill him. Now, if you're paying attention, he's the offspring of the first generation of human beings. So you would think, at the very least, there are multiple brothers and sisters and perhaps children of those that are already filling up the world. That's one thing that the first and second and third generations of people and human beings that God made, they did that well. God said, be fruitful and multiply, and apparently they did. So Cain was a worshiper. He's, he's been doing this perhaps his whole life. There was even perhaps a time frame that is separate when we talk about or when Scripture mentions Cain actually killing his brother. The Lord says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. His desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Verse 8, Cain spoke to his brother Abel. Then, when they were in the field, Cain rose up and killed his brother Abel. So there's probably a time frame there where after 
the words of the Lord were spoken to Cain, he left having heard the words of truth from God himself and yet still allowed sin to continue to build up in his heart so much so that he rose up and committed murder. So, so he's a worshiper and even after the Lord spoke the words directly to him, he still allowed sin to creep up and corrupt him in such a way that it caused him to murder his brother. So we see, even in the life of Cain, sin corrupts, it destroys, it harms. One of the most important phrases, as we really hone in on verse 7, one of the most important important phrases I think in all of scripture for us even as believers even as believers who battle with the flesh daily is this phrase that sin is crouching at the door its desire is for you its desire is for you its desire is to kill you right and it doesn't matter who you are it doesn't matter what corner of the planet you are on sin is waiting at the doorway to your heart wanting to burst in and to wreck everything. And I think when we look at phrases like this in Scripture, we just kind of gloss over it. We kind of glaze over it. We just kind of go on. Like it doesn't really mean too much to us. See, we know we're sinners. And if I were to ask and poll every one of you and perhaps even everyone in the county, are you a sinner? Most would say, well, yeah, I've sinned. I know I've, I've done sins, right? I sin maybe even a lot. Maybe we even admit that we sin a lot. But yet, do we realize just the depth of the sin in our own being, in our own flesh? Now, we know what Scripture says, right? We have passages like Jeremiah 17. It says that our heart is wicked before Christ is wicked. Who can understand this heart? We have Romans 3, of course, that preaches this Really this bad news before we get to the good news of the gospel. That the bad news for you and I are that we do not fear the Lord. We do nothing righteous. We do nothing good before God. So we know that Scripture preaches and teaches us those things. A passage I quoted earlier out of Job 14 that, that we drink iniquity like water. So sin, again, is so normal to us. Our flesh loves sin oftentimes we, we we think of sin as being something that is perhaps like a well outside of the city that only the most immoral go and travel to to drink from in reality the well is in each one of our homes and we are the ones freely drinking of it it's not something that is for our neighbor and that's something we, we do often right where we hear about sin and we think and I'm really glad my mom's here, my brother's here, my daughter's here to hear this. My husband or my wife, they really need to hear this message. But I wish I could really just take this to those kids at school for all them to hear. But the gospel and this message itself is not for just them. It's for you. It's for us because we are sinners. We are sinners and we, we love our sin. We have this other issue that I mentioned. We don't really take it seriously. We don't. We we treat it flippantly. 
Like it's a very small thing. Like it's not a dangerous thing. Sin is not this abstract idea that gives preachers something to preach about or parents something to harp at their kids about. Sin is like a viper that is creeping in and slithering up to our homes and in our lives to destroy. And it's not to be taken lightly. Scripture never takes sin lightly. I think in our, our culture, even our church culture, we have this issue where we, we, we have taken the God who is holy and exalted and, and high above all things, and we have brought Him down. And we view Him so in such, a, in such a tangible way that He is almost like us. And in reaction to that, we view sin like it's really not that big a deal. When we view God as being holy and righteous and king of all things and the one who is perfect and who demands perfection out of his creatures, then we will start to see sin like it really is. That it is incredibly, incredibly heinous. I think we are a people that we lack genuine self-awareness. Now, if I were to ask all of you, do you know of anybody who lacks self-awareness? We would probably mention many names. My wife would probably mention my name and maybe I would mention her name. We, w- we would do that. Oh yeah, they definitely don't understand their own sin. It's kind of like, you know, leaving a restaurant and you have a million things of food in your teeth or on your shirt and you want to be the person that tells them, but they don't even know. I was never able to grow a beard. Some of you guys are cool enough to grow a beard. But I have friends that have these big beards and oftentimes they're eating, they walk outside the restaurant and they got like a whole meal in their beard or something. And they, and they lack complete self-awareness and knowing that it's there, right? And that's such a small example or a small analogy to reflect how as believers even, we lack such a self-awareness of how our lives work, how sin works and how sin corrupts our lives. And we lack all those things of knowing really what our issues are. If God were to write a list and say, here are the things that Adam struggles with, and I were to write a list on all the things I struggle with, they would probably be very, very different. I would not see clearly what God sees. So we lack this self-awareness. We think, again, that others need to know these things, but we perhaps are outside of these things. I can't tell you how many books I've read and I thought, I need to give this book to my friend because they need all these words. And yet, it's really pointing to me and my own sin. We don't think again that it's our problem, but somebody else's. We lack the self-awareness. We we allow it into our homes. We are like the Israelites who are taking idols from all the other gods. We're putting them up on their walls and our homes and saying, you know what, it's okay because I go to the temple to worship the one and true God. And it's okay if I have this little statue or this little idol in my home of this other God because I go and worship the true God. And oftentimes we are doing that. We are opening the doors to our homes and letting sin corrupt our homes and our children and our families. That's not a, it's not a hard thing to imagine. We, we can see that. We can look around and see those things. I'm so fearful of our lack of self-awareness. I, I taught at a Christian school when my family and I lived in Kentucky. And I remember having conversations with students who all, most, for the most part, came from at least professing Christian homes. 
And most of them went to church on a regular basis. They spent a lot of time in church. Their families really was, were concerned about their, not just their education, but about their physical or their spiritual well-being. They were concerned. But the way I heard these young people talk about sin as being so common and so apathetic towards sin and all the things that they were engaged in. Now, they didn't come out and say, here are the things I'm doing. I'm addicted to pornography or something like that. But it was so obvious from the way they talked. They knew much about sin. They knew way too much about sin. And, I, and, and it just dawned on me that it's not that their parents aren't concerned. It's their parents just do not realize how sin works its way into our homes. They just don't realize how sin works its way into our lives and into our families. I knew I was going to have problems with this. I was thinking, at least I'm sure, being in South Arkansas, somebody has some duct tape I can wrap around this thing. But we allow these things and we, we don't see it. We don't get it. And I know this sounds really silly, perhaps, to your ears, but I'm scared to death. I am scared to death of what my kids are going to see. And I'm trying to grab everything away from their eyes and I'm trying to make sure they don't see anything that I won't want them to see or that God wouldn't want me to see even. But I'm still scared to death of the things they're going to hear or the things they're going to see. Because I can't, I can't control everything, right? But we oftentimes open the floodgates and then we wonder why our children leave our homes and go to a secular university and then run away from the faith. I don't, I don't think that it's just because they've been exposed to this incredible world of sin. It's because we've let sin in our homes so much that these generations, my generations and younger, just don't believe us anymore. If their families are falling apart around them, how are they supposed to believe that the God of the Bible can heal anything? that can, the God of the Bible can fix anything if sin has so corrupted their families even that it's not even looking like it should. And that's how sin works. We have these ideas that, that, that again, we can control it or sin's just some problem we can put into a corner and trap there and stay there. And it's okay because we have, we have our eyes on it. And that's simply not like it. We are. That's not how we are. We oftentimes open the door in such ways. I, I, I liken it to David when David was at the height of his superiority as king and his power, and God was really working through David. There came a point where in uh, Samuel it says that David, all the kings went out to battle in the springtime, you know, when the weather was good. And all the kings went out to battle, and David was, seemed like he was pretty selfish, kind of lazy, full of himself, stayed at home. He didn't really follow his responsibility as a ruler and a leader. And it sounds like it's such a small thing. Oh, he just stayed home. And then he committed adultery. And then he murdered the husband of the wife to whom he committed adultery with. 
when we're not following what God has given and we're opening doors to sin, it allows sin to just flood in. A good picture of that is found in James chapter 1. I want to read you this passage out of James chapter 1. This is James chapter 1 and verse 14. It says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do you think David thought about those things? It said in the late afternoon, he goes and climbs up on the roof of his house. That doesn't even make sense for us, but I guess maybe if you've got this big castle, you just want to hop on the roof and look at everything. But David just running around playing games while his soldiers are out fighting. He climbs up on the roof of the house, looking around. It's almost like he had this James chapter 1 enticing. I need to find something to, to engage my time. I need to find something that feeds my flesh, it seemed like. It seemed like he was really looking for something. And then he saw what his flesh craved. I find it amazing that a man with hundreds of wives commits adultery. How does that work? If sin can corrupt in a sexual manner the way it did David, who has hundreds of wives, you would think that would never be an issue with him. But it corrupted in a way in a man like David to not only commit adultery, but also follow that up with murder. Then it certainly can even corrupt men and women like you and I. We also make excuses for sin. That's, that's an easy thing. We make excuses for sin. We justify sin in some other way. What's the, what's the, I want to I show you through a simple illustration how, how easy it is for us and how common it is for us to sin and, and have this so ingrained in us, these excuses for sin. My son, a few days ago, we're playing with other, I think our cousins, their cousins, and they were getting into trouble. And the first thing my son said, who's five, when I called him out on getting into trouble, what do you think he said? They were doing it too. He learned that at an early age. Guess what? We still do that now. Look, Lord, look at all the people around me. Look at the people in my church or the people in my community. Look at what the pastors are doing or the elders or the deacons or the Sunday school teachers. Look at what all they're doing. You do that as an adult just as much as my son does it as a five-year-old. I do that often. I look at other people and I think, well, my life kind of compares pretty well to theirs, so I must be doing something right. Or even if they're doing this, I guess it's really not a big deal if I do that as well. So we compare ourselves by others around us. Well, guess what? On judgment before Christ himself, we're not going to be able to sit next to our pastor. You're, you're not. You're not going to be able to sit next to your Sunday school teacher. You're going to be there alone before God and your sins will be counted against you, not against somebody else. And much like the five-year-old who gets in trouble, I'm not going to go whoop all his friends. I'm going to take care of him. And we're going to try to correct him. That's how sin works. We make these excuses. We try to justify sins. Have you ever heard this before? If, maybe you've done this. Husbands and wives, we do this all the time. We're in a conversation where one says, listen, you really did this thing wrong. And what's the first thing that we do in response? Well, you did something else wrong. Congratulations, you're both sinners. 
We already knew that. My wife and I knew that well before we got married, that we're both sinners and that we both make mistakes. And as soon as we even get called out on sin, we say, well, something else is going on. Somebody else is the issue. Somebody else is the problem. It's not really us. So we, we make excuses. We try to justify sin. And we're really not fearful for God or fearful of sin. We're not fearful of God or fearful of sin. Let's go down to verse 11 of Genesis chapter 4. I, I, want, I want you to see, not just what I want you to see, the Scripture is, is preaching this truth of the, the, the harm that sin does. And it's so clear in, in Scripture, and yet I, I can't, I could preach for weeks on end, and we might never be concerned about sin. But yet the Scripture is, is crying out to us to be fearful of the God who is holy and run from sin. Look, at down, look down to verse 11. This is the harm that sin does in the lives of people, even in the lives of believers. Verse 11, And you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. We can see the ramifications for sin all around us, right? Has your heart not broken when you see families that are being torn apart? That's because of sin. That's the physical manifestation of sin allowing to destroy. And we cry out, God, please just keep this together. And we hurt for the children and we hurt for the wives and we hurt for the husbands because they're going through this destruction of family because of sin. Sin will find you out. We, we know we use the phrase from Scripture often that we reap what we sow. Well, if you drive 150 miles per hour down the interstate, or even maybe down one of these windy, curvy roads in the country here in South Arkansas, will you not, will you not reap what you've sown into, the foolish decisions? Of course. Of course. We know even practically that for the world, outside of the believing home, outside of the believing church, the world will face punishment for sin. It's death. It's hell. So we know that this is what we sow into if we reap unto sin. It is destruction of family. It's destruction of lives. It's destruction of homes. It's destruction of churches. And God gives this curse to Cain. But it isn't just a destruction of the physical. It's a destruction of the, the, the spiritual, right? Look down to verse 14. Behold, you have driven me away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. Verse 16, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. Is that not much more devastating than any physical issue? than any physical ramification for sin? That we are driven away from the presence of the Lord when we sin? Cannot a heart of a believer grow hard and cold toward Christ Himself? It can. It can. That's what we fear we should fear most. 
That's what we should fear most about sin is that our hearts would get used to it. That it would become normal for us, but we wouldn't become sensitive over sin anymore. We would just be so cold. Have you, you've never, I'm sure you've been through a cold season in your life. I've been through some where I thought, God is so far. When I pray, He seems a million miles away. He seems like He's in another galaxy. And as much as I crowd, He seems so far. Do you think that's God? Or me? No, that's, that's me. Because my heart is cold. Because my heart is hard. And the church needs more than anything. There are churches all over the planet that look at this as their authority, right? The church does need the Bible. But more than anything, it needs the presence of God. More than anything, you as a believer need in your life is not just to memorize more Scripture, although that's very profitable, but it is more, it's much more for us to be with God and for Him to draw near to us. As the psalmist says, His nearness is to us our good. So, let our hearts not be hard. Let our hearts not be hard. Let us not be drawn away from the presence of the Lord by sin. It's the last phrase I want you to look at in this passage in chapter or in verse 7. We'll go back a few verses to verse 7. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Brothers and sisters, you are responsible for your sin. You are the one to, is, that is to master your sin. You are the one who is to lock the doors of your soul to sin. You are the one who is to keep your home away from sin. You are the one who is to be an ambassador for Christ, both in the community and in your church, to keep out sin from destroying you and your people. See, you are no longer a slave to sin. If you are a follower of Christ, you are now a slave to righteousness. We are no longer bound by the chains of sin. We throw those off. And we follow Christ. But we must remember as believers, as much as we perhaps have heard this a thousand times, you must remember as a believer that God calls you to cut off the limb and to pluck out the eye. He calls you to do that. But yet, it's so hard for us to imagine why that the husband who goes to work every day and talks to that beautiful receptionist. He has a loving wife at home and children at home, but yet he talks to her. He likes the kindness of her words. It's so hard for us to imagine that he could, em could engage in sin. Or the wife that's, that's constantly, or the, even the husband that's constantly scrolling through, coveting the lives of other people on the Internet. It's hard for us to imagine how sin gets in their lives. Well, this is how. Because it's crouching at the door and we are the ones who are called to throw those things aside. We're the, we're the ones who are called to put those things away for the cause of Christ. Now when we read through this passage, you, you, you read through the same passage I did, verses 1 through 16. We could even follow through. We could go to chapter 5. We could go to chapter 6. It doesn't get any better for those few chapters. If you have a heading... A title heading on chapter 6, you can look down. Mine says, Increasing Corruption on Earth. It doesn't really seem to get much better after Adam and Eve sin in the garden. And soon we have Noah build an ark for his family and everyone else is destroyed for sin. So it doesn't seem like there's good news to this story. 
I find this incredible. Look at verse 9. When the Lord called out to Cain, and this is incredible, God, God works everything to come back around. It's like Genesis points to gospel. And it does, right? Chapter 4, verse 9. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And Cain's response is, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The good news of this message throughout this curse is that we actually do have an elder brother that keeps us. We actually have an elder brother that is responsible for us. We actually have an elder brother who loves us and cares for us. I told you it was going to happen. I have a lot bigger ears than some of these other guys in here. But we have an elder brother Jesus Christ, who is caring for us, right? We have an elder brother that loves us and pours out his life and his blood on the cross for our sins. He is not some elder brother who says, I don't know where my brothers are. Who am I to care about my brothers? I'm doing what I'm supposed to do right here. That's the only thing I care about. Yet Christ is not like that. Christ is not like Cain. He is one who pours out his own blood for our sins. He is the one who cares for us and forgiveness of sin and ways out of this destruction of sin's path is found in Jesus Christ alone. That's the grace that we have in the Gospel. That Christ is the one who came to save. Think about this. God cursed Cain. Galatians chapter 3. Christ came to take our curse. Genesis 3, we're all sinners. Matthew 1, Christ came to save sinners. Joseph, you're going you're gonna to have a son. Mary's going to have a son. You're going to name him Jesus. He came to the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners. So we, as we look at this passage, we take seriously the, the sin that, that plagues us and plagues this world, but yet we continually look to Christ and that we as believers, we are a repenting people. That we are a people concerned with sin, but rushing to the cross and rushing to Christ as the only one who can save. Brothers, sisters, beware of sin. Fight tooth and nail against sin, but rest in Christ and run to Christ as our only hope. As our only hope. Let's pray. Father, give us grace. Give us grace and kindness today that oftentimes we hear messages about sin and we want to feel good. And the Scriptures just continue to preach that, that we are plagued with this disease, yet we have the goodness of Christ. We have the mercies of Christ, God. So let us rest in Christ. Let us trust in Him. Let us go to Him. Let us cling to Him. God, that, that we are a people, that we understand how sin works, that it destroys, that it harms, and that we are, that we are a people who need Christ. 
that we are a people who desperately need salvation in Christ alone. So Father, please help us realize help us realize our own our own frailty, God. Our own sin, but help us cling to Christ and rush to him with everything that we have, God. In the name of Christ and in the glory of His name, the Christ that came to save sinners. In His name, Amen.